The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Jonah Lehrer, whose book, Imagine, How Creativity Works, has just been published by Houghton Mifflin. Jonah, thanks so much for coming into the Slate studio. Thanks so much for having me. Your introduction begins with Procter & Gamble, a team who was investigating the future of mop technology. Can you tell us that story and also why you chose to begin with the mop? I chose to begin with the mop because it, it's one of those everyday frustrations that's very easy to overlook. And, and so the story takes place in the early 1990s when Procter & Gamble is trying to invent a new soap for its line of mops, for this, you know, for its line of floor cleaners. And so they turn the problem over to a team of 35 chemists. And the chemists spend a few years trying to come up with a better soap. Um, it turns out to be a very difficult chemical problem because you can make the solvent stronger. You can increase the power of the soap, but then you irritate delicate skin. You peel the varnish off wood floors. There are all, there are all sorts of technical constraints on how one can engineer a soap. So after a couple of years of these technical failures, the executives at P&G said, OK, we've squandered enough time working with these chemists. Why don't we just outsource the problem? So they approached this design firm called Continuum. And Continuum realized that they don't know more about chemistry than the chemists at P&G. At the time, P&G had more PhDs on staff than any other company in the world. Which so, is amazing. Yeah, so it really is this innovation powerhouse. And so instead, the guys at Continuum, the designers at Continuum, decided to begin with house visits. So they spend the first nine months in the project just watching people clean their floors. Um, this sets up the immediate problem of when you tell people you're going to watch them clean their floors, of course they clean their floors before you get there. <laughs> so, so, so they had to get over that hurdle. But the first thing they really discover is that mopping is a terrible idea, that when you watch people mop, it turns out they spend more time cleaning the mop itself, cleaning their cleaning tool, than the actual floor. And that's because over the decades, companies like P&G had come up with all these mop fiber technologies that were great at getting dirt off the floor. You know, they were static and all the rest. But that made it very tough to get the dirt out of the mop head. So they've got all these videos, these grainy videos of people in their small Boston suburb bathtubs trying to get the dirt out of the mop head, splashing around this filthy water and just making a bigger mess. And you realize, wow, this is a terrible idea. So after nine months, the guys continue them. They hadn't solved the problem. They just realized that mopping really needs to be replaced, that it should be an obsolete cleaning method. But they didn't have a solution. So Procter & Gamble said, guys, this isn't helpful. We'll give you another few weeks to actually come up with a new product for us. The designers continue more stymied. They didn't know what to do. Until on one of their last house visits, they come into the house, and it's an elderly lady. And, and this time they were being mischievous, so they actually tracked some dirt into her house on purpose and spilled some coffee dust on her floor. And they watch, you know, even though she said she was a big fan of vacuuming and mopping, that's really how she always cleans stuff up. When they spilled coffee dust on her floor, they watched how she cleaned it up and she didn't get out her vacuum or her mop. Instead, she tore off a paper towel, wet the paper towel with some water, and then just ran that paper towel along the floor and poof, the coffee dust was gone. <laughs> and it was suddenly watching that, that, that activity that we've all done a thousand times before, that led to the eureka moment, that led to the epiphany. And that's where the Swiffer 
was born. That's where the Swiffer came from. The idea of instead of having a mop head that one has to clean, why not create a disposable cleaning surface, these wipes? It's more effective according to all the cleaning tests. And it's also very lucrative because you can charge $10 for what's essentially 10 paper towels. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I guess it, sound, it seems like an odd story to begin with. I guess I was drawn to the oddness. I was drawn to the fact that I think when one's writing a book on creativity, they expect you to begin with Einstein right. or, or, or some big, big breakthrough. So, so I, I was drawn to the mundaneness of it. I'm also just a fan of the Swiffer. I know, um, I've got the whole Swiffer family in my closet. So I was just interested in that story. Now, as someone who has often experienced frustration, I was very glad to learn that being stumped is actually an essential part of the creative process. Now, why is it important that we go through a struggle when we're yeah. trying to do something. I mean, I think it's especially important when one needs a moment of insight. And, and what scientists have discovered is that that feeling of being stumped, which is so frustrating, being blocked, hitting the wall, it's a yeah. terrible, terrible yeah. feeling. That's really what forces us to think in very new ways. We kind of have to be hurt into you know, thinking big new ideas. And so that's why the feeling of frustration is actually a crucial signal for your brain that, you know, that now I need to start thinking in really new ways. The old ways aren't working. Unfortunately, most people, I think we've been trained to react to that feeling of frustration by kind of doubling down on what we're doing. So we drink another coffee, you know, we, we chain ourselves to our desk, we yeah. force ourselves to stare straight ahead at the computer screen. What the science suggests is that's the exact wrong thing to do, that, that when you feel frustrated, that's really your brain telling you, okay, now we need a big new idea, now we need a moment of insight because this problem seems impossible. Mm-hmm. So I should do something very, very different. I should, you know, leave the office behind. I should take a long walk. I should take a hot shower. I should find a way to relax myself because the answer will only arrive once I stop looking for it. You mentioned the warm showers. One of the things that your book does so well is not only do you talk, you know, you have anecdotes that are very sort of relatable about problem solving, but then you also provide the scientific proof, as it were. (laughs) Reverse engineer the success story. Yeah, exactly. Um, So why is taking a warm shower a good way of causing a breakthrough? So what scientists have found, and, and, and these are scientists primarily Mark Beeman at Northwestern and John Cunius at Drexel, who have done a really interesting job trying to understand moments of insight, these big creative breakthroughs, where they come from. And what they found is that one of the big predictors of whether or not people can have a moment of insight, one of these epiphanies, is whether or not they're relaxed. And one of the correlations with relaxation is what's called alpha waves. And you can measure alpha waves by wearing an EEG cap. It's like wearing a bulky shower cap on your head. And and it measures the waves of electricity pouring out of your cortex. And what they found is that when people are relaxed, they are much, much more likely to have a moment of insight. Mm -hmm. And the reason is pretty simple, that that when we're not relaxed, when we're really vigilant, when we've just chugged a triple espresso, Mm -hmm. that our attention is fixated on the problem itself. So so you're thinking about the thing you can't solve. You're thinking about the frustration. And Mm -hmm. maybe there's a wrong answer looping like a broken record inside your head. It's not until you're relaxed that you're able to turn the spotlight of attention inwards and finally hear that quiet voice coming from a obscure part of the right hemisphere. It's called the superior interior temporal gyrus. That's, that's a part of the brain that seems to light up, seems to exhibit a spike in activity in the seconds before a moment of insight. So it's not until you're relaxed that you're able to turn the spotlight of attention inwards and actually hear that quiet voice. Um, and that, I think, is why people have all these anecdotes about their best ideas coming in the warm shower. Because mm-hmm. it's in the shower, you know, you're forced to daydream, you're being pelted by hot water, you're shampooing your hair. It's a pretty relaxing moment. I think it also helps that the shower is the last place we really can't take our phones. Right. So it's the last place you can't interrupt your daydreams. The last place you can kind of interrupt that quiet voice by saying, oh, I got to check Twitter again. Yeah. Um, so, so I kind of wonder if, if the 
innovation returns on showers are only increasing because they have yet to create a waterproof iPhone. Right. I've had some of my best ideas on plane rides, which yeah. is, I mean, nowadays there is more. And now they're ruining that by, exactly. by giving us, you know, Wi-Fi on planes. Oh, terrible. <laughs> Damn 21st century. <laughs> I know. Now, the second chapter begins at 3M, which you point out amazingly spends nearly 8% of its gross revenue on basic research and which typically derives 30% of its annual revenue from products that are less than five years old. How does a company manage to keep coming up with so many new and successful products? My favorite fact about 3M is they've got nearly a one-to-one employee product ratio. So they have 50,000 employees and 50,000 products. Um, and, and this is a company which is, you know, they, they invented tape. They invented scotch tape and masking tape. And you tell the, those stories, which yeah, are and, fantastic stories. And, 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 and now they make the screens in your phone and your laptop um, and your LCD television. Yes. So, so they, they, they are everywhere and one doesn't even realize it. And, and I was also drawn to 3M because I think a lot of people associate some of their innovative ideas, some of the cultural ideas which have allowed them to become this innovation powerhouse with their imitators. So, for instance, the bootlegging hour, the fact that employees at 3M have for the last four decades been able to allocate 15 percent of their working day to their own private projects or their hobbies. Mm-hmm. They can work on whatever they want. The only requirement is that they're willing to share it with their colleagues. Um, most people associate this rule with Google because Google mm-hmm. also implemented the 15 percent rule at Google. Um, but it's been done at 3M for decades and they've got story after story of innovations have come out of the 15% rule. And, and one's first response to hearing that is, dude, you know, do your work. Now, yeah. That must be a very common response. You know, they're very honest about it. You know, from a certain perspective, all the management consultants told us it's a terrible idea that people are going to goof off, that you're basically allowing people to spend one day a week just wasting time, that you're going to get no returns from it. You know, maybe it's good for morale, but that's about it. But but that's not what 3M has found. 3M has found that it's part of a larger message where they want to hire smart people. They're in the creativity business. They want to hire smart people, and they want to get out of their way. And so the 15% rule is not just about the private projects. It's also about we're going to let you manage your attention. Uh-huh. We're not going to tell you when to look at your computer screen and when to take a break. We're going to let you think about whatever you want to think about. If you've hit the wall, if, if you're stumped, mm-hmm. go take a nap in the couch in the corner. They call them napping couches. <laughs> go take a walk among the 500-acre corporate campus. Mm-hmm. Um, go do whatever you need to do. So that's, that's, I think, one big 3M idea. Their other big focus is on fostering what they call horizontal interactions. This is something that took me a while to wrap my head around. They typically force engineers to move from domain to domain every five to six years. So if, you've been, if you spend five years working on adhesives, they've got mm-hmm. a big adhesive division. And you're an expert in all things glue. They may move you to drug delivery. They may move you to some completely new field because what they want you to do is to meet new colleagues, share the answers that worked for you mm-hmm. on tape and glue to a completely new domain. And, and when you look at the history of 3M innovation, especially in recent decades, a lot of their best ideas have come from those kinds of horizontal directions. Now, I imagine that, like me, you mostly work from home, mostly yeah. mostly alone. Yeah. I mean, are there ways that <laughs> the we... thrilling writing life. <laughs> exactly. Are there ways that you have found that you can kind of learn from places like 3M who found that, you yeah. know, and the science, again, that you have science to sort of back this up. Yeah. How can single workers kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's, I mean that's been a big question I've thought a lot about in, in, in the book. I mean, I think one... One easy answer is to move to a city. Um, I've, I've got a chapter on cities later on in the book about trying to understand the why cities are this engine of innovation, and a lot of it is just the incidental interactions that we that you know that we bump into a stranger while waiting in line for a latte. 
you get enough of those bumps and you eventually get some good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you overhear other people talking yeah, in the line and stuff. Yeah, exactly. You eavesdrop. And, and all those urban interactions, what Jane Jacobs called the ballet of Hudson Street, the ballet of the sidewalk, they add up. So one answer is to move to a city. Um, in my own life, I, I really have made a more conscious effort to seek out a more diverse social network. So one of my favorite studies in the book was done by Martin Raff, a sociologist now at Princeton, who he tracked 766 graduates of Stanford Business School and watched them become entrepreneurs. And what he found is that if you're trying to figure out who's going to really start an innovative company, one of the most predictive things you can look at is the diversity of their social network. That entrepreneurs who hung out with people who were just like them, so if they were um, you know, electrical engineer, their friends were all electrical engineers who also went to Stanford, that they tended to not be very innovative. That if you looked at the companies they started and looked at them in terms of profits and trademarks and patents, that, that they did much worse than people who had very diverse social networks and people who hung out with people from all different backgrounds and different fields who you know who 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 just interacted with strangers mm-hmm. so so i've i've made a much more concerted effort to strike up conversations with the people sitting next to me in the airplane the swiffer story we were talking about in the beginning that actually occurred while i was backstage at a marketing conference and just struck up a random conversation with another speaker mm-hmm. and um, i asked him what what he worked in and he said floor cleaning and, I, and my first thought was oh god oh <laughs> this is why people don't make small talk I'm going right. to talk about floor cleaning and then he tells me the story of the Swiffer and it's you know it's this wonderful story and, and, and for me that's always a reminder that when in doubt, ask a question right. and, and especially ask questions of people who come from different places than you mm-hmm. people who work on different problems because mm-hmm. that's where your good ideas are going to come from right on now one of the great myths of creativity is that of the genius who, you know, is having great thoughts that come out of him or her fully formed. In the shower. Yeah, in the shower. Now, surely there are geniuses among us, but you say that persistence and sort of continuing to work even after you feel like you've got a fine or actually even good solution is key. Yeah. Now, tell me about that. I mean, I really wish I could write a book that just said take showers and play ping pong (laughs) and go for long walks. But, you know... When you talk to people in the creative business, um, you realize that it's actually really hard work. Now, what do you mean by creative business? Like people like admin and so on? Yeah, admin or novelists Uh, or composers mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. scientists um, that you may have that big epiphany and it may come in the shower. But that epiphany is still going to need edits. You're still going to have to put in draft after draft after draft. And there's this great – this great quote from Nietzsche where, where he actually talks about Beethoven, who he quotes from Beethoven's letters where, you know, Beethoven is like the cliched genius, you know, the, the ultimate romantic genius. And even Beethoven talks about how, and these letters to his friends, talks about how he, he'll go through 70 iterations of a single musical phrase. And it's very painful for him, but this is how he finds the beauty. Mm-hmm. It doesn't arrive fully formed on the first draft. Mm-hmm. 70 different you know, experiment, 70 different versions of, of a single musical line. Mm. And I think that's a general truism of creativity. And, and this also, I think, begins to explain one of the things you find when you try to figure out, well, what are the defining traits of these epic creators, people like Pablo Picasso and Bob Dylan and Steve Jobs? And at first glance, it's quite mysterious because, you know, they don't necessarily have higher IQ scores. Um, you can give them a battery of personality tests, Myers-Briggs and all the rest. And they may be a little bit more open to experience, but that's about it. And, and you know, often that's not a significant difference. So it's not quite clear what makes them so special. And one of my favorite explanations for, you know, one of the defining features of these creative geniuses is a relatively new personality trait called grit. 
Grit. Grit, which is pioneered by Angela Duckworth. And she's done a lot of interesting work showing that when you look at highly successful people in all sorts of domains, whether it's athletes or people in the creative business, they're grittier. They're better able to persist, to stick with it, to go through 70 iterations of a single musical phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, she loves quoting Woody Allen's you know, quote about 80% of success is just showing up. And, and grit and, and persistence and stubbornness allow you to show up again and again and again. I mean, the larger lesson here is that creativity is always going to be hard. It's not easy coming up with something new. Mm-hmm. You have to deal with frustration and failure. And that's just part of being in the business of invention. Um, and so you have to learn how to get through that. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You get to choose which one you want. You can listen to your books on your PC, burn them onto a CD, or upload them onto your iPod or other MP3 device. The book we're discussing today, Jonah Lerner's Imagine How Creativity Works, is available on Audible, and it's a book I heartily recommend. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Imagine or another of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword gets the credit. Now, Houghton Mifflin has very kindly given us four books of Imagine to give away to listeners. If you would like one, send an email with the words Imagine Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, April 6th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. Jonah, another thing that you talk about that I've seen for myself, especially in teaching or learning languages, is the need not to care what people think about you, to kind of be childlike in a way. You describe this as letting go. Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, my interest in, in letting go really began with a brain scanning experiment. It was very well done. It was done by scientists at Johns Hopkins. They had this interesting idea, well, why don't we just put professional jazz pianists, guys who improvise for a living, because that's a, that's a pretty weird way to create. I mean, here you are just putting yourself on stage. You have no idea what you're going to do, and you just trust that you'll be able to do something interesting and beautiful and, and you know, impress the audience, right. impress the paying audience. Right. So like, okay, why don't we just put these guys in a scanner and, and tell them to improvise and see what happens. And what they discovered in the control was having them play a melody they'd memorized in advance. What they discovered is that in the moments before people began improvising, these jazz pianists were able to inhibit their inhibitions. They clicked off a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain that's closely associated with you know, impulse control. So it keeps us from saying stupid stuff, from grabbing at food on a plate, from shoplifting, from, you know, it allows us basically to act like mature adults. And these jazz pianists were turning it off. They could turn it off on command. They were letting themselves go. And that's what allowed them to create without worrying about what they were creating, which seems to be a very important part of improv. And then I got to spend some time at Second City, which is the famous improv theater, which is 
given us, you know, so many great comedians. And you watch their warm-up techniques before they go on stage, and they call it getting out of your head. And they do all these exercises which look ridiculous. Like, <laughs> people have to make loud flatulent sounds. They go around just making farting noises. Listeners, we did that before. We yeah. Did that before. <laughs> just, you know. <laughs> To loosen up too, they're forced to do a five-minute confessional where they tell something very revealing, like just things to get to get the censor out of their head, yeah. and 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 that's a very important part for them too. So I, I think in a way they would never use this language, of course, but they're trying to silence the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex too. <laughs> they're trying to figure out a way to let themselves go, but but I think your comparison to learning a second language is really interesting because that's that's an analogy the scientists sometimes use too you know they say like you really have to devote years and years of practice to getting to a point where it becomes so automatic you can just let yourself go uh-huh. and trust the rest of your brain to come up with something pretty and interesting yeah. so they actually use learning a language as their example where you know it has to become automatic before you can do it without thinking about it right. and, that, and that takes years of practice and memorizing verb conjugation tables and all the rest so you can't just get up on stage and assume that you know, someone with no piano talent like me can let myself go and I'll suddenly be, you know, improvising like a master, like Coltrane or Davis. That takes years and years of practice. I was also really struck by the example you gave of the people, there were two that you um, described, who, as it turned out, had what sounds like a just awful disease, frontotemporal dementia, dementia yeah. who went from, in their case, displaying really no interesting art to becoming absolutely obsessed and consumed by it. Yeah. Now, this is one of the known side effects of frontotemporal dementia, which is just just a horrible, horrible disease. It's where basically your frontal... Your frontal cortex disintegrates. Um, so and what does the frontal cortex do? It allows for planning for the future. It allows us to retrieve memories. It also plays a big role in impulse control. Uh. So, so people who suffer frontal cortex damage often have problems with self-control. And so mm. one of the hypotheses advanced by people like Bruce Miller, who have closely studied a lot of these patients, these frontotemporal dementia patients, who all of a sudden need to create. I mean, they, they wake up every day and all they want to do is paint or sculpt mm-hmm. or create something. And these are often people who were stockbrokers before, like a biologist or janitors, people who had no interest yeah. in the arts before, and yet now they're obsessed with it. One of the hypotheses is that so much of our brain is about inhibition control. That's what allows us, that's, that's an essential part of human nature. That's what allows us to be adults. And all of a sudden, you slowly lose that part of your brain. It, mm-hmm. it falls apart. And you've got all these visions you need to express. And you're not worried about how pretty they are or whether you're culling outside the lines. You just need to do it. Mm-hmm. It is this tragic, tragic disease, but, but it does have this uplifting moral, which is that it shows we're all a little bit more creative than we thought. I think it also speaks to education. There's this great line used by many teachers, which they call the fourth grade slump which is that it's about in fourth grade where kids all of a sudden stop wanting to paint and draw and create new things. That's because they often describe being afraid of drawing the wrong thing, that they realize their pictures aren't quite as pretty as they want them to be, that their creations are inherently flawed. That's why they lose interest in, you know, in the act of creation. Um, and, and that's also about the time when the frontal lobes start to really come online and, and we can you know, generate real impulse control. So in a sense, one of the costs of maturity, of being able to exert self-control, is diminished creativity. And so we should all aspire to the condition of these jazz pianists who can just turn it off on command. Right. Although I don't know if you recall this, uh, but the, one of the things that – one of the experiments that you describe, um, just telling people that they were seven years old yeah. – made them more creative yeah yeah we can lapse into a more childlike zone of thought um yes yeah, so this is an experiment where 
people were primed to think of themselves as little kids. They had to write an essay describing a problem from from their perspective as a seven-year-old, what they would have thought about it if they were seven. And sure enough, that leads to a big boost in creative problem solving. I was also very interested in what you reported about scientific discoveries about the benefits of travel. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of, so it, it, this is a great excuse, you know, well, I don't really have the money, but it's going to be really good for me to go and spend exactly. uh, two weeks in Paris, right? This is research led by Adam Galinsky at Northwestern. And he has shown that spending a few months abroad makes people much better at solving various creative puzzles. And in particular, it's creative puzzles that involve the bias of functional fixedness. So one of the classic puzzles he gives is called the Dunker Candle Problem, where you give people a cardboard box containing a candle and matches and some tacks. You tell them to attach the candle to the wall so it can burn properly. And mm-hmm. so most people assume that, okay, here, you know, here are tacks. I'll just try tacking the candle to the corkboard. But, of course, that doesn't work because the tacks aren't long enough and you shatter the candle mm-hmm. and then it falls off and, and you're dripping wax everywhere. It doesn't work. And so most people quickly assume that this problem's impossible, that, that it's actually a stupid trick. And so they give up pretty quickly. About 90% of people just give up after trying to tack the candle to the board. In order to solve the problem, you have to realize that the cardboard box, the container, the vessel, is actually part of the solution. And, it requ- and that requires you to realize that this cardboard box, which you assume can just do one thing, which mm-hmm. is hold the candle and the tacks and the matches, can actually do something else entirely. And so what you're supposed to do is tack the cardboard box to the corkboard wall and then sit the candle upright in the box. And then it burns perfectly. Mm-hmm. Now, people who have lived abroad are much better at solving those kinds of problems. And the explanation seems to be that experiencing the, you know, the frustrations of travel, the ambiguity of another culture, you know, what does this mean? Where is this train taking me? <laughs> How much do I tip the waiter? All these annoying things that drive us all crazy. They actually force you to think about problems from multiple perspectives. They force you to take into account the way someone else might solve it. And, and that's a creative blessing. So the first half of the book is about sort of individual creativity, and then you move on to collaborative innovation, places like Pixar as opposed to poets like Auden. We're running out of time a little bit, but I must ask you to tell me about the bathrooms at Pixar. <laughs> when, when Steve Jobs was designing the Pixar studios, and this is before he returned to Apple, so he probably had too much time on his hand, <laughs> he was very involved in the design of the studios and Pixar had bought this this beautiful stretch of property outside Oakland. It was the site of a former Del Monte canning factory. And the original design called for three separate buildings. So one building would house the animators, one building would house the computer scientists and the programmers, and one building would house everyone else, the directors, the editors, the screenwriters, and so on. Jobs realized it was a terrible idea that instead people should actually all be in the same space. So he decided to keep the shell of the canning factory. But he realized that it wouldn't be enough to just put people in the same building. It still would never interact. The animators would just talk to animators and so on. So instead, he started moving everything to the atrium. He moved the mailboxes there and the gift store there and the cafe there and the coffee shop there. But he realized even that wasn't enough because you could build people this beautiful cafe and it's a beautiful cafe and they serve organic Pete's coffee and all the rest. But the computer scientists would just talk to computer scientists. They'd just have lunch with people who spoke their languages, who used their same acronyms and so on. So instead, he realized that the only place everyone has to go every day where you'd be forced to actually mingle is the bathroom. So he insists that Pixar only have two bathrooms in this vast, vast studio, and he put those in the atrium. Eventually, they actually had to install a second set of bathrooms (laughs) because it was too annoying, but now everyone at Pixar has their bathroom epiphany story, the great idea that happened while they were washing their hands um, or while they were walking towards the restrooms. Right, because you don't necessarily talk with people in the actual bathroom, but the fact that you have to 
go from out of your comfort zone into this central exactly. area. And it also, I think, sets this larger, sends this larger message that true innovation requires trade-offs, that it's going to be annoying to have to walk all the way to the bathroom <laughs> several times a day. It's going to take up your time. Yeah. But, but true innovation requires mixing and mingling. It requires those sorts of trade-offs. And that, I think, is the secret to Pixar's success. And now another great insight that I think everybody will be very relieved to hear is that scientifically you prove with science yeah. that brainstorm- <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> yeah, brain science that <laughs> brainstorming is a waste of time yeah. so but no holds barred criticism uh, which is delivered in a civil manner is very productive and that yeah. also is a, a lesson from Pixar right? brainstorming is probably the most widely implemented creativity technique of all time it was invented by Alex Osborne a marketing executive at BBDO kind of the Don Draper of his day and he wrote these, these best selling books on creativity and he credited brainstorming with inventing like the good Campbell's soup <laughs> campaign and all these other great ideas which had grown out of BBDO and as outlined by Osborne, brainstorming had two rules. The first rule was don't criticize. Whatever you do, don't tell someone their free association was a bad idea. Yeah, there's no bad ideas. No bad ideas, right? The assumption Wrong. being that, that, that the imagination is very meek and shy. And if it's worried about being criticized, it'll just clam up. Second rule of brainstorming is all about quantity, not quality. That can come later. The idea generation phase, just free associate, get your ideas in the wall. This is a feel-good creativity technique, right? Because we all come together. No one gets the feelings hurt. We fill the whiteboard with ideas. We all feel productive. Look, it's so full. (laughs) But the data is pretty clear that brainstorming doesn't work. And scientists have known this for at least 50 years, that people are actually more productive when they work by themselves on a problem than when they come together to brainstorm. So brainstorming, instead of becoming more than the sum of our parts, it actually does the opposite. We become less than the sum of our parts. Now, the reason brainstorming doesn't work gets back to the first rule, which is thou shalt not criticize. Work by Charlotte Namath and others have shown that when groups engage in acts of debate and dissent, when they are encouraged to actually point out that that idea won't work, that's not feasible, Here's how to make it better. When they engage in those kinds of conversations, they have anywhere between 20 to 40 percent more new ideas, and these ideas are rated as better by an independent panel of judges. <laughs> the reason debate and dissent draws us out is because it really forces us to engage. When we kind of just skim along the surface of the imagination, when we just throw up the most obvious free associations, mm-hmm. we rarely get somewhere interesting. But, but when we engage in real conversations, we're forced to listen to the ideas of others. We try to build on them. We're surprised. We've got some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Criticism really wakes us up, and, and, and that's when we come up with, with good new ideas. And at Pixar, every morning begins with a sort of a in, in an old the shredding session yeah in an old Maoist thing would be crit self-crit they, they sit on these very comfy velour couches and they review the footage from the days and weeks before and, and they dissect it they tear it apart they point out all the problems and the flaws and it's often not fun you know it's first thing in the morning and, and your work is getting deconstructed mm-hmm. but they realize this is you know this is how you iterate um, Lee Uncrench who's director of Toy Story 3 he framed it in terms of most creative places are about avoiding failure. They assume success is about the avoidance of failure. But the secret sauce of Pixar, as he, you know, as he argues, is that it's all about trying to fail as fast as possible and then fixing it. All the research that you did, all the studies that you read, how did they change your own uh, creative process? <laughs> as I said before, I think they have made me more willing to make small talk with strangers. Um, the, the single biggest change, though, probably concerns what I do when I feel stumped. Um, so before I had this you know, puritanical 
notion in my mind that when you feel stumped, I should go and make some more instant coffee yeah. and just not leave my desk. I'm yeah. not going to get up until I solve this problem. Maybe it's I don't know how to structure a chapter or an article or write a sentence, but I'm not going to stop until I've got something there. And of course, you wake up the next morning and you stayed up too late and you're hungover on caffeine and you're like, I didn't actually fix anything. This is a terrible sentence. The structural problem is still there. But, but at least you felt productive while you were doing it. Now I'm much more willing to, when I feel stumped, take a long walk, go for a hike, relax, take a nap, go take a hot shower, just find some way to stop thinking about mm-hmm. the problem. Um, you know, there's this great quote from Einstein who said, creativity is the residue of time wasted. <laughs> so I, I guess the single biggest way the book has changed my work habits is it's made me much more willing to waste some time. Right on. Well, thank you so much for wasting time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank um, you so much for having me. Sure. That was Joan Lehrer, whose new book, Imagine How Creativity Works, is available in bookstores now. And if you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. Slate.com. I'm June Thomas.